Okay, three things. First, do you like to start your day with a hot cup of coffee? Lots of people do. But do you think about where that coffee is grown and how it gets to you? Second, if you're like me and you grew up on a farm, then you have a deep appreciation for how farmers make business decisions in the face of the uncertainty that comes from dealing with nature. Third, this episode is being released to coincide with Earth Day, the day when we show support for the care and protection of our planet. What do these three topics have in common? Today's guest is Dr. Keith Whittingham, and we're going to spend some time getting to know him and also learning about the business of sustainability. Welcome to Drummer Connections podcast series. I'm your host, JB Adams. In this series, I'm talking with members of the Crummer community and inviting them to share their accomplishments, challenges, and best career and business advice. Today's show is brought to you by the Crummer Graduate School of Business at Rollins College. Consistently ranked as the number one MBA in the state of Florida, the Crummer School offers a variety of educational programs to prepare you to become a global, innovative, and responsible business leader. The Crummer Graduate School of Business, experience excellence. Today's guest is Dr. Keith Whittingham, Associate Professor of Sustainable Enterprise and Corporate Social Responsibility at the Crummer Graduate School of Business at Rollins College. Right now, his research is focused on understanding the discourse around corporate sustainability and sustainable development goals so that we can better understand the ways that corporations can engage in solving major societal challenges. You may be surprised to learn that he holds a PhD not in business, but in electrical engineering from Cornell University. And after completing his PhD, he got his MBA from the Cromer School. Um, emphasis on after completing his PhD, he got his MBA from the Cromer School. He is also the founder and CEO of Artifacts Cafe, a coffee brand focused on bringing real income to farmers and real impact to their communities. Dr. Keith Whittingham, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's uh, great to be with you today. I appreciate the opportunity to share with your uh, listeners. I'd like to start by asking about your area of expertise. Um, why is sustainability something that's really important right now? Why do you think business leaders should pay attention to it? Well, I think we have an interesting window of opportunity. Back in uh, 2015, the United Nations pulled together a strong and broad group of players from various segments of, of the world economy. So governments, municipalities, uh, corporations, nonprofit organizations, NGOs, to ask and answer the question um, of what is the world that we want to be? Right? What kind of world is it that we want to live in in the future? And uh, out of that emerged these 17 sustainable development goals, targets uh, that um, give us a roadmap to start to address major societal challenges and create a global society that, uh, that, that can uh, sustain us going forward well into the future. Um, and business had a major role to play in that. And I think at this point in time, that's really where that window of opportunity is. And we're seeing businesses get more and more engaged. So let's talk about these uh, 17 goals. This was not just a bunch of world leaders sitting around um, doing some wishful thinking. There's very specific goals in here that are addressing problems. What are some of the things on the list? For example, goal number one is no poverty. 
Uh, you can tell it's a little bit tighter defined than, than reduce extreme poverty. The target here for 2030 uh, is, is no poverty. And what do we mean by that? Underlying every one of these 17 broad goals are a number of sub uh, goals and indicators uh, and, uh, and thousands of metrics that roll up into these uh, into these 17 goals but they're really targeted for specificity measurability uh, and they're tracked on a year-by-year -year basis across countries to see how what kind of progress we're making so the un has set these goals as targets and they have ways to measure them and, and so forgive me I, i'm kind of a challenging pragmatist um, who would say is this realistic how can you get everyone in the world you know to rally around this direction and um, and the truth is that the goals uh, have some risk factors associated with them. If we don't act on them, right. there will be consequences. So so paint a picture for us. Certainly, yeah. Well, firstly, I, 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 let me address the maybe misconception uh, that the UN set these goals because the UN is kind of the sort of been the 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 shepherd of these, but they were very, very intentional about not setting the goals themselves. Mm. They really brought together, these are our goals, right? Okay. They brought together everything from individual citizens to uh, organizations at every level uh, of, of, of society, right? From the individual all the way up to, to governments and got broad agreement across the, the, the globe on on these targets and setting these, uh, these targets and advancing towards them. And yeah, there are very, very significant risks. I mean, there's a lot of discussion for example, around uh, around uh, climate action, which is goal number thirteen, and uh, the 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 UN through its intergovernmental panel on climate change has has set some um, targets of where we need to be to start uh, uh, avoiding catastrophic impact to our society due to climate change. So some of these things certainly have a lot of risk. But honestly, they are seventeen goals, but they uh, there's no we can't be successful unless all of these are, mm -hmm. uh, are, are, are achieved or we make significant advances. You can't really address climate action without dealing with um, gender equality, for example. And that's a, well, that sounds like, wow, we're talking about two very, very different things. Uh, we can talk more about the linkage there, but um, all of these are really interconnected at a deep level and we need to find ways to kind of hand in hand, again, across every level of, of our global society, find ways to make incremental and then more and more disruptive advances towards these goals. Okay, so I will invite our listeners um, to go online and just check out United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals uh, if you want to know more about those. And they really are interconnected. But I also want to add, um, this is personal for you because you're the CEO and founder of Artifix Cafe and you're in the coffee industry. So can you provide an illustration for us in the in your world in the coffee industry that sort of spells out the importance of sustainability wow there there are many you know and um as i look across the 17 sdgs there's not any one that i could pick there's several that may look look obvious so i got involved in coffee as a um, really from the standpoint of being in and around coffee growing communities, particularly in rural Costa Rica, and hearing firsthand from farmers about the struggles they were having, making an income in the traditional coffee value chain. Uh, and certainly we can talk a whole lot more about that, and that speaks very directly to 
sustainable development goal number eight, decent work and economic growth. Uh, but their challenges were between, uh, you know, the, the choices they had to make with their very limited income were between improving the yields on their uh, on their farms and uh, and putting food on their tables. So, you know, we're balancing now number number eight with uh, with SDG number two on zero hunger, number one on no poverty. Uh, but it really goes broader than that. I was, for example, just yesterday watching a video on the coffee value chain and its interaction with the broad global ecosystem. And one of the things that they kept talking about was just how intertwined um, agriculture and coffee as a great example needs to be with uh, with nature so while 15 years ago we were all talking about sun-drenched coffee fields people have realized that no the best way to grow really good quality coffee is with a lot of shade and integrated with nature integrated with the forest and we're starting to see people try to do more and more of that so we're then bringing in like number 15 uh, goal number 15 which is life on land and how do you you know really there's a lot of tremendous amount of interconnection among all of these all of these things and you can't talk about agriculture and forestry without talking about clean water and so you know it goes it goes on all right well you and i could talk about agriculture endlessly because uh, i grew up on a farm and um, i've seen the transformation just in my lifetime on uh, sustainable agriculture mm -hmm. practices um, and I think we should talk about it more and really, you know, um, sort of develop more specific and concrete plans for American agriculture. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, let's see if there's a takeaway. What, what would you say is the message to business leaders about sustainability? So we might have business leaders who are not in the coffee industry, but there's a there's a sustainability message for everyone in business. What do you think that should be? I think the message, and I will say it's a message that I see more and more businesses grasping uh, on, on their own realizing, uh, is that at, at the end of the day, if we just think about business the way we traditionally have, you know, um, maximizing our, our, our utility and maximizing shareholder income, if we run out of resources and we run out of, 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 of a market, um, whether it's businesses that are failing or individuals that can no longer consume, we're going to run into a dead end as 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 a business. So the broad takeaway for me is that if we want to continue to do the things that we do as a society, live the way we would like to live, and at the same time see others have the ability to live that way as well, we really need to start to understand fully the impacts uh, on our our. Um, ecological environment as well as our human and social environment and start understanding how can we minimize the negative impacts and how can we leverage our incredible strengths and competitive advantages as businesses to help move the needle in a positive direction on some of those um, uh, environmental and uh, human and societal challenges. So if I may offer an interpretation, um, we're all in this together and we need to listen to each other. Definitely. All right, we're going to move on to our next segment, which is Keith Whittingham's business background. Um, this lets us get to know you and, and sort of understand how you arrived here. So tell us uh, where you were born and raised. Well, I was born actually in the Bronx in New York, um, born to to uh, Jamaican parents um, who had immigrated in the in the mid 50s. And, um, and, I, and I, I that's it's interesting, I often don't 
talk too much about that. When people ask me where I'm from, I usually start from the next stage of the story, interestingly enough. I, my response will be I'm from Trinidad and Tobago. But I was born in New York, and um, my family moved to Trinidad and Tobago in the Southern Caribbean when I was two years old. And I was really, really spent all my formative years uh, growing up. So I was doing a little research. Um, Trinidad and Tobago could be considered a small island nation, but it has a very uh, proactive approach to its economy um, from my understanding of it. And um, your father is part of that story and he's one of your early business influences. Uh, yes, yeah, definitely. He is, uh, has been a huge influence on me. I mean, he's been my, my I've always said my, um, my my hero, right? My single greatest hero, you know, ask, oh, who's your favorite superhero? My dad. And so I, I mentioned that we moved when I was two years old from uh, from New York to Trinidad and Tobago. And my dad, when he got out of uh, school, he went to NYU and then Baruch for his MBA. And he, he was a statistical economist. He studied uh, economics and was a statistical economist with the United Nations. The, um, the UN had an organization called the Economic Commission for Latin America that was based and still is out of Santiago, Chile. But the they realized they needed a different kind of understanding of what was happening in the small island nations of the Caribbean. So they decided to open what they call the sub-regional office in Trinidad and Tobago. And they asked the gentleman to head it up. And he was, came, and my dad was the first person that he went to say, hey, would you like to join this team to come down and launch this new office within this uh, this UN division? And uh, he um, seize the opportunity. So, so while his role was, he was positioned in Trinidad and Tobago, his role was really uh, serving the entire uh, Caribbean and, um, you know, interfacing with the team in Santiago that was uh, responsible for all of Latin America and the Caribbean, focus being on economic development of these newly independent nations. Did your father set policy or merely influence it? The attempt was to influence it. I mean, I think a lot of the, the uh, so, so their role was almost as external advisors to these small governments, looking at uh, models that had worked in other places in the world and trying to say what um, needed to be different in the small island nations of the, 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 the recently uh, colonial um, Caribbean. So they, they could only advise, they would have lots of meetings with finance ministers and cultural ministers and all sorts of things, uh, particularly on the finance and economic side of things, but so on. And I spent many, many days kind of looking over my dad's shoulder. He's working on these tables of economic figures from all over the, all over the region. And what lessons would you say that you learned from watching him? I, I learned, a, I'd say a lot of lessons from watching him. Um, I think, you know, I would say maybe one of the most fundamental for me was a, a view of the world that was not limited to one country. So while I, you know, I called Trinidad and Tobago my home because that's, that's where I first knew my heart is probably the, maybe the best way to describe that. Um, I have always kind of thought of myself as more of a pan-Caribbeanist, you know, and that's one thing it certainly has given me was a global perspective on things, certainly at minimum a regional perspective on things, but an openness uh, to beyond any kind of a parochial view. The other thing that I think I learned from him and his experience was that, um, you know, advisors are, are, are not always, you know, welcomed or they're tolerated often, not always welcomed or heeded. And you just have to keep on going, you know, <laughs> because uh, I remember, you know, I think there are a lot of times when they would make, you know, recommendations to, to, 
governments, but governments are led by politicians and their time horizon is often quite a bit shorter and have other kinds of interests for better or for worse. And I think understanding how to stay true to, to the, the, the mission and, and the data uh, and just keep plugging away, even though, you know, you're often feeling like you're banging your head against the wall. I think those are little things I've picked up. And I will say a lot of this was kind of through the filter as a, as a child and as a teenager of not having a lot of detailed discussions with my dad, but in many years of hindsight, sort of, you know, reinterpreting conversations with him and the things I was watching looking over his shoulder while he was working on at his desk at home and things like that. That's excellent. Uh, our guest is Dr. Keith Whittingham, and we'll, we'll be back in a moment to learn more about his professional journey. Please stay with us. Hey, listeners, this is Clara Mount, host of VMG's original series, Replay. In the next few weeks, I'll be hosting the Crummer Hour, where we'll invite today's Crummer Connections guests to return so they can respond to questions and comments from the Crummer community. We would love to include your thoughts as well. Send us a question or a comment, and we'll read your name on the air. You can email me at clara at victormediagroup.co. Look for a link in the show notes, and thanks so much. This is JB Adams with an important message. As a member of the Crummer community, you know it's the people that you meet at Crummer who make the greatest difference in your career. So I want to tell you about Rollins Connect. It's a networking platform that will help you stay connected to over 40,000 Rollins alumni worldwide. Rollins Connect is coming soon, and we'll have more details about it in the coming weeks. That's Rollins Connect, your connection to the Crummer community. Welcome back to Crummer Connections. I'm JB Adams. Our guest is Dr. Keith Whittingham, Associate Professor of Sustainable Enterprise and Corporate Social Responsibility at the Crummer School. Now, before the break, uh, we were chatting about sustainability and early business influences. And now we'd like to learn more about how you arrived here. It's what I like to call the making of a professor. So everyone heard me say this in your introduction. You don't have a PhD in business. You have a yes. PhD in electrical engineering and you found your way to business. Um, so that's very intriguing to me. So, so tell me about what you thought you were going to be as a young person and, and what happened along the way. Sure. Um, you know, I've had students often come to me and say, wow, how did you go from, you know, from, from engineering to business? And I went on my path and they're pulling out the notebook and a pen. And I'm like, okay, hold on a second. You, you probably don't want to do it the way I did. It. <laughs> um, okay. So, so I, as I said, grew up in Trinidad and Tobago and got honestly a, 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 an amazing education. It's one of the things I got took away from from Trinidad and Tobago for short. I was good in math and science, and people were like, "Oh, you should be an engineer." And I was like, "Great, I'll go to university and be an engineer." And then I was off looking to try to figure out, well, okay, what's an engineer? Uh, I knew it wasn't about driving trains, but then it was a matter of figuring out, okay, what what what's interesting in that space? What well, was kind of kind of neat? And I actually went to Howard University as an undergrad in Washington D.C. and uh, studied, uh, I, I enrolled in civil engineering and I ended up changing my major, but I was, I said, okay, civil engineering, dealing with construction and water resources and environmental. And I'm like, okay, it sounds interesting. And that was really where I got started. 
So I got started getting interested in lasers and uh, semiconductors, and I was like, "Wow, this stuff is cool!" And uh, it just really got me got me going. And I came back and I was like, "Well, how can I? I want to learn more about this." And realized, well, civil engineering wasn't the place to do that. But we had a great department of electrical engineering, and I changed my major, and and that was really my course then through the rest of my undergraduate and uh, and graduate work. But uh, what did you? hope to do with electrical engineering how were you going to change the world did you just thought yeah, you know i'll tell you i was what 19 and i was definitely not thinking about changing the world um i was just like this stuff looks like fun yeah you know and i could barely get my head around it it was challenging to me and uh, you know when i learned how lasers work i was just blown away. I mean, I could not, you know, just like, wow, I've got to soak up more and more of this. So my goal, I'd say, was to learn as much as I could. But honestly, I wasn't thinking about saving the world. I was thinking about uh, more about, wow, this is an exciting field. And, and, you know, I could maybe learn enough to make a contribution to this and ultimately to come back to Howard and teach. Okay, so there was an intention of teaching because my next question was going to be the purpose of getting a PhD is to, at least in your case, well, there to me, there, there are two paths I had. Both of them in, involved learning and sharing that knowledge. So it was either uh, being a research scientist with a, uh, a governmental or a corporate research lab or, uh, or some other kind of think tank like that, at least in, in engineering, or being a uh, faculty member doing research in an academic setting. So in order to do that, you have to get your PhD and you did that. But yeah, you know, so so to do the research piece, I knew I kind of I wanted to do a PhD. And honestly, for me, a lot of it, I wanted to learn. And that was kind of the path to learn. Right? Where can I learn more? So I got to the end of my undergrad and I was like, yeah, but then I was like, yeah, yeah, I need to go to uh, go, go and do a, a PhD. And I spent a little time trying to figure out where to go. But I was really interested in a very specific area of technology that just got me all right and we'll go into details on what it what it was but um i decided there was this professor at cornell that i wanted to go work with so, i mean i chose my my uh, my uh, phd program literally by the by the professor that i wanted to go work with and i ended up going to cornell and uh doing entering that phd program and spent five years there and and yeah it was an interesting surprise so cornell is a fantastic place. I mean, it really, really is amazing. And the kinds of facilities that we had there and the kind of um, work that we were able to do there was was truly uh, amazing. Um, personally, though, it was a very interesting and challenging time for me. Um, this professor that I wanted to work with was phenomenal in terms of the work that he did. Let's just say that we let's just say we didn't get along all right <laughs> i'll just put it that way we didn't have the greatest relationship and that made my experience at at cornell really really difficult but the other thing though and maybe it was partly through that as a graduate student you work really closely with faculty uh and not just you know i had a committee so i was working not just with my professor but with about four other professors and then i was taking classes with other professors in the department and one of the things I learned, and maybe the thing that was most strikingly put into effect in my life coming through my PhD degree, was I ran as far and as fast as I could from academia. I did not, I did not, if that was what it meant to be a university professor, I wanted nothing to do with it. 
And I, not even, you know, not even halfway through the program, I was like, you know, forget this, I'm gonna, uh, uh, there are really cool things I can do in industry. I had a fellowship from Bell Laboratories and that's ultimately where I wanted to go work. And, and that's what I did. I spent some of my summers there, and but I wanted nothing to do with academia from a standpoint of being a professor by the time I was done with my five years at Cornell. But uh, you were in industry for a while and somehow you got enticed to come back. So what changed your mind? Yeah, well, a handful of things, you know. Um, I never lost the desire to learn, okay? And yes, I was in industry working in the semiconductor business, working in an R&D group that was tied to a manufacturing facility here in, in Orlando. And I got to a point where I felt like I needed to learn more. There were a couple of drivers for that, but I started realizing through some experiences that I was having that there was more to uh, the the decision making process than just the you know what made the right engineering decision and that kind of went my appetite to learn a little bit more and I also at the same time through again just the experiences of life as I was going through my twenties realized um, that that there was a difference between my reaction to technology and some of the things that I was starting to learn and experience. I remember having an argument with a, a fellow grad student when we were working at, at Bell Laboratories in, in the summer uh, while I was in grad school. And he he challenged me about not being you know, sufficiently passionate about my field. Cause I was, you know, my colleagues were sitting around the lunch table and they're talking about the work. Talking, and I was just like, I was interested in exploring other things, talking about other things. And I was highly offended. I'm like, wait a second. You don't know where I come from. What I've done, how can you tell me I'm not passionate about my field? And years later, not too many years later, I realized, you know what? He was exactly right. One of the things I learned uh, and it's been a huge takeaway for me was the difference between fascination and passion. And I realized my whole life I had been, and I still am fascinated by technology. I still think back to some of the things I did in my PhD thesis, and I'm just still blown away. But I started to realize it was that, that passion was a different thing. And I started to kind of identify and try to identify where my passions lay and start making a decision to kind of pursue those passions. And that's part of what led me back to wanting to learn more and different things. The other thing that happened was that I started looking around the company because I loved my company. I really, really loved uh, the, 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 the team of people at Bell Laboratories is a phenomenal place. It had all kinds of challenges that ultimately led to its demise, but that's another whole business case. But I wanted to stay within the company and look for different kinds of things to do. And I started looking around and decided to take a, a, a job within our HR department. And people thought I was absolutely insane. But my first day on the job, HR reported to a different VP in operations. And my first day on the job, he calls me into his office and says to me, you need to go to Rollins and do your MBA. And I was like, okay, that's, that's different and interesting, but it looks like it would help me learn more about these kinds of things. And um, a few months later, I found myself sitting in Cromer Hall with part of a, a executive MBA class 18. Uh, and uh, that got me back into the classroom, back into learning in a formal environment. But it also gave me an exposure to a faculty that operated very, very differently than what I had previously been exposed to at the uh, in, in uh, at at, uh, at Cornell in my PhD program. And and that really kind of turned that vision around for me. I was really impressed by my colleagues. I was impressed by their passion for teaching. I was impressed by how they worked together. 
and uh, Karma is a unique place, as you know. Uh, and um, when the opportunity came sometime after I graduated to join the team, I sort of jumped at it. I turned down a couple other opportunities to, uh, to and said, you know what, I think I'd like to be a part of the team here at Crummer. And initially, it wasn't even in a teaching role. I joined as um, Associate Dean for Operations. My first year and a half, I ran the, the, the staff that ran the, the four uh, at the time, our, our, our four MBA programs. I didn't know that you had you have lived lifetimes uh, at, at Crummer, um, so that's fascinating to learn. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. I'm one of the I'm few one... people who actually has been both, you know, all three of staff, faculty, and student at Crummer. That's that's excellent. Uh, I want to go back to something that you said because I want to get your interpretation. Um, the difference between uh, fascination and passion uh, sounds like it's direction and in other words passion could be fascination plus direction yeah i think so and that where i think part of it ties to where that direction comes from maybe for me i think of it more as you know whether it's internal or external right that direction but also what what part of of my being is is resonating with whatever i'm engaged in right and um for example, the technology I was studying, so I was growing crystal structures, and yeah, that's another story I tell students, well, you know, I'm, I'm a crystal grower, and that meant something before Breaking Bad, it means something mm -hmm. different now, but uh, I was a crystal grower, uh, and we could grow some amazing structures, and I think that fascinated my, my mind, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, there were some other things that I ran into and learned about that really drew my heart. Hmm. And I think for me, that's probably where that biggest difference is between the fascination and the passion that the, the, the direction was coming from my heart and not my head. Ah, all right. That helps make sense. Uh, wonderful. Uh, Dr. Whittingham, we're about to wrap up our time together. Uh, is there a message that you would like to share, uh, particularly to current or prospective business students? Wow. Um, I would say, you know, if you can identify what it is that you're passionate about, and I think that's, you know, it's so commonly said now that I think it's almost, it's almost more, uh, it's, it's becoming almost, almost cliche, right? Let me rephrase it this way. I learned when I started investigating that, investigating that difference between passion and fascination, I started asking myself a question and I, determined that I never wanted to stop asking myself what I want to be when I grow up. And that's an approach that I take every semester when I start a new, you know, preparing for new classes, when I, you know, look at a new year coming on as I, uh, you know, I'm always trying to think about, you know, be in the present, but be open to a future that could look absolutely nothing like the present or the past. Uh, I think that idea of being open, being open to the possibilities is something that I would encourage people to explore. And if I'd had to, you know, leave, leave a takeaway, that would probably be it. Great advice for any one of us. Uh, Dr. Keith Whittingham, thank you so much for joining us here on Crummer Connections and for sharing your story. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with another episode. Today's show is brought to you by the Crummer Graduate School of Business at Rollins College. 
Now is a great time to consider enhancing your career's success by pursuing an advanced degree in business. And the Crummer School offers a variety of educational programs to help you become a global, innovative, responsible business leader. To learn more about the programs and the application process, go to crummer.rollins.edu. The Crummer Graduate School of Business, experience excellence. Crummer Connections podcast series is a production of Victor Media Group. It's the mission of Victor Media Group to make the world a better place by making ourselves better people. If you like this show, please follow us on your favorite social media platform. Today's show was created and hosted by J.B. Adams and executive produced by Gerard Mitchell, with production assistance by Kyle Sawyer and audio design by Aaron Trinka. Our gratitude goes out to Mike Brown and Loveland Finley in Alumni Relations for their gracious help and support. Until next time, Fiat Lux.